This is Alejo Stark, co-producer of Rust Belt Abolition Radio. You're tuning into Michigan's Kinross Prison Strike, Reflections from Inside, an exclusive archive of audio interviews with people currently incarcerated in Michigan who witnessed and lived through the historic September 2016 prison strike. In this segment, we hear the voice of Fred Williams. Fred Williams is a poet, emancipatory educator, and abolitionist correspondent imprisoned at Michigan's Kinross Correctional Facility. His dispatch covers the poor systemic conditions those inside face at the hands of the Michigan Department of Corrections, and particularly in the newly reopened and renamed Kinross Prison. Last September, increasing frustration led to a work stoppage and then a spontaneous march when the facility declined to provide full meals in the fees of the stoppage. Fred describes how the administrative staff told strikers that, quote, some of your demands can only be granted by suits and lansing, end quote before housing unit officers fled their posts for the control center and the emergency response team entered the grounds with live ammunition. Fred begins by sharing his recollections of the historic strike. As I recollect what happened at that time, it was a time of frustration and intolerance due to living conditions at the facility. Um, pay wages being incongruent with, with commissary prices and Food services being like utterly disrespectful with the way that they serve and portions being too small and, you know, quality being not so good and living spaces being really congested and overcrowded and ventilation being, from our unprofessional views, still being not up to code. It wasn't a coincidence that everyone was being diagnosed with pneumonia and upper respiratory issues and fluid on the lungs. People who have never had these issues before, including myself, had to once arrive into this place. And so from what I understand, some guys had collectively decided to not show up to work, to do a work strike in order to try to come to the table and reach some sort of agreement with administration. And so they decided that no one would go to work on a, on a, on a specific date. And, and they followed through. And so the facility was locked down due to no one being, no one reporting to work. And so the facility was locked down, but by no one reporting to work, then the private entity of the food services had to work because, of course, they had no they had no prisons to work for them. And so their idea was to punish was to punish everyone by feeding us peanut butter and jelly sandwich for dinner. You know, you, you consider feeding a grown man a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and a handful of cookies for dinner at six o'clock in the evening. I don't know what human being would, what, what, what grown man wouldn't be a little upset with that. And so that carried on for a day, day and a half, and frustration amongst the prison population was increasing. You know, guys were getting really frustrated, you know, because first of all, the idea of not going to work, of, of the work strike, thinking that it would induce some conversation, some discussion amongst the administration, that wasn't working. Only thing that was coming of it was that people were being fed even worse than they were before. And so in the following morning, I can't remember the date, and so the following morning when guys were fed on the 10th and was fed, fed two slices of bread, two slices of cheese, a banana, and I believe two cookies. And that was the, and that was the, and that was the breaking point. And so spontaneously, guys decided that they weren't going to go into their housing units, leaving from breakfast, leaving from the child hall that morning. They decided that they were going to stand out and protest, protest the food, protest health service protests, the ventilation protests, the living conditions overall. And so as these few guys stood outside, walking in circles, protesting, chanting, you know, equal work, equal pay, chanting, and they were also calling for other guys inside the housing units to come out and stand with them in solidarity. And 
it worked. Slowly but surely, guys just start pouring out of their units, going outside, walking into the circle. There's a common area outside of all the housing units. And prisoners usually aren't allowed to um, circulate this entire um, common area unless you have a detail to go to a health service or a control center or a school building or a big yard. But these guys, you know, took it upon themselves to disregard all rules and policies that day. And they walked in circles in the common area chanting, and the crowd just grew larger and larger and larger until the point where when I looked out the window, it looked like it was maybe five, six hundred guys out there. And at one point, they basically stormed the control center. It seemed like it was like 250 guys in front of the control center. And some administration staff had, had went outside to talk to the guys. And, and the prisoners were, were really hostile at that point because they felt like their voices weren't being heard, no matter how peacefully they made requests for changes. For instance, some small changes like the visiting room. Prior to that date, when you go on a visit with your family member, you would have to sit across from your family member instead of being able to sit next to your family member or loved one. And so small things like that that could have been changed here within the administration weren't even being heard or considered. And so they were frustrated. You know, they, they began yelling at administration and then began to make threats. And so the ERT was called in, the emergency response team was called in. Like you'll have a small ERT team that can come eradicate a small crowd or a small riot, small fight, but the magnitude of this crowd <laughs> required much more. And so, you know, they called ERT. ERT uh, members came from all over the state. And so it took a while for them to get that team together. So it took four or five hours. And from what I understand, it's either the first or second time the government allowed for live ammunition to be entered onto the prison compound in Michigan. And so I would say, I don't know, four or five hours because they had blew the emergency count. And the emergency count is um, it's an institutional horn that everyone knows, right? Once you hear that emergency count, that means go to your room, lock down, get on your bunk so you can be counted. And this is a this is a horn that everyone adheres to. It's kind of like a fire alarm when you know to exit the building. What is when you hear this emergency count horn? That means enter the building. And everyone ignored it. Tells you all rules and policies went out the door. Like all consequences for any breaking any rules and policies went went were were, were not adhered to. And I noticed that once the ERT was about to come through the door of the control center to enter the compound. You know, those, the, the prison population who were out there protesting, they strategically closed off the, the entrance so that the guy, so that the ERT couldn't enter into the facility to, you know, disperse the crowd. And then I noticed that once the administration noticed what the prisoners were doing, they rerouted the ERT to a side entrance. And once the prisoners noticed that, they blocked the side entrance. So they had the front entrance and the side entrance blocked. It's like a game of chess, you know, you move, we move, you move, we move. And, and in that game of chess, the administration came out and talked and they said, you know, okay, we're going to make, we're going to try to make these changes. We're going to try to make these changes. We're going to listen to you. We're going to allow guys, block reps from your house units to come up and talk to us. And we're going to sit down and discuss some of these things and we're going to fix this and we're going to fix that. Some of your demands can only be met by suits and lancer or can only be denied or granted by suits and lancer. And so it's really, you know, they were saying it was unpractical for those guys to expect the administration to make those changes at that day and time. So, you know, the language that they used was enough to you know, quell the failure spirit for that moment. And so they told those guys, if you go lock in, if you go lock down and be counted so we can make sure no one, you know, escaped or anything, 
then, you know, we'll get you guys hot meals, we'll get you guys good food, you know, and we'll start discussing these issues. And it was a trick. Those guys went in and locked down and was counted. And then something that had never happened before happened. All of the officers who worked in each housing unit fled the building. Once every prisoner was on their bunk to be on their bunk to be counted, all the all the officers of each housing unit left and ran to the control center. And so at that point, all the prisoners was like, "Oh, Armageddon! Like, what's going on? Like, all right." So at that point, no one knew what was going to happen. So everyone just started running crazy. Everyone. Like, some people were already intoxicated because, you know, they had been drinking and smoking that day just because, like I said, all rules and policies were out of the door. You know, guys were walking around brandishing weapons, you know, to, in, in preparation to defend themselves against ERT. And once there were no officers in the housing units, you know, guys just, guys just ran rampant with breaking into the council's office, stealing files, setting things on fire, throwing washing machines and dryers out of the window. Snatching sinks and toilets from the wall and breaking cameras and breaking windows and yeah, it was it was mayhem. It was mayhem for a moment until you heard they got guns, they got guns, they got guns. You heard guys screaming, "Look, not the window! They got guns! Everybody get down! They got guns!" And then it, it took it, the, the, the texture of the atmosphere. It took a whole it took a whole different texture. Like the intensity increased by the by the thousands, right? Like because you, because you, because in your mind frame, you know, all the officers, all the regular officers are gone. No one, guys who've been down 20, 30 years in prison in Michigan has never seen before. And so who knows what kind of response they'll have. We don't put, at this point of knowing that prisoners have been murdered by COs and knowing that, you know, suicide, like there's been uh, prisoners murdered and, and labeled as suicide. And who knows what, who knows what they had the capacity to do. So you, when you hear guys say they have AR-15s and they have shotguns and they have 40 cows, you're like, this knife isn't going to do anything now. It's a, it's a different level. So once they got into the units, well, first of all, guys guys were jumping out of the windows because of the smoke. You know, guys were trying to evade smoke and ventilation and they jumped out of windows. And I mean, it was, it was wild for a minute. If I can just go back and just capture that moment of we the moment in between the regular officers leaving and the ERT officers arriving, that moment, time, that frame of time, it was a wild time because you had you had prisoners going into the officers' closets, taking their coats and their utility belts, and walking around acting like the officers, just being silly, um, you know, setting things on fire, breaking everything, destroying everything within sight, and then the ERT came and. They came in, get down, everyone, get down, get on your bunk, get on your bunk. You see red beams on, on your the guy next to your forehead and the guy next to you telling you there's a red beam on your forehead. Well, they, they pepper sprayed, you know, and then they began handcuffing people and taking people outside, laying them down in the rain. It had started raining. It got really cold. So, yeah, they, they had just started handcuffing people and putting those zip ties on people's arms and taking them outside, laying them down in the rain, freezing cold rain, you know, without coats. And they began putting people on the bus by the hundreds and shipping them off to level five facilities, segregation level five facilities. And they're charging them with exciting riot and failure to disperse and so on. Like I had seen guys, you had seen guys being taken away who actually did not participate in the protests or the 
you know, the rebellion or the uprising or the riot, however you choose to phrase it, you had seen guys who literally got on their bunk and stay on their bunk and didn't participate whatsoever and were shipped away. And so you're on edge, right? You don't know if you're going to be shipped away and sent to a level five, sent to segregation, and, you know, and, and and even when they were letting off the shots, the, the, um, the pepper spray shots, right? There's a there's a red dot on there's a red dot on your head. And you, and you, once you hear these shots go off, you know guys are diving on the floor. Guys are hiding behind lockers because you know they're yelling with such frustration and intolerance in their voice. And you know you, you, you peek out of, you peek out in the hallway and you see a guy hunched over a chair, you know, with a rifle, an AR-15 pointing at you. Really didn't know what was going to happen. You know, you re- you really didn't know what was going to happen, how far it was going to go. And so for some guys, I would say most guys who were left behind were happy that they were left behind, but still days after and weeks after guys were still being snatched away and, and sent off to level five and segregation never to be heard from again. Like there are guys, there are guys who still are in those segregation and those level five facilities as a result of that day. The one thing that I can say that changed from it was the visiting room seating arrangement. Now you are able to sit next to your loved ones when you go on a visit. Um, but I don't see any other changes. I don't I don't see any other changes. And I don't know, sometimes I think about the fact that because I, I heard that more facilities within the state were supposed to protest in the same way at the same time. And so I imagine in theory, had that occurred, like, I'll just imagine how, it's hard to imagine how the state could have responded, you know, what happened to it, employ so much manpower and resources to this one facility at that time. Like, can you imagine 10, 12, 15 facilities on fire with prisoners jumping out of windows and, you know, refusing to lock down, refusing to be counted and looting, you know, because, you know, there was a point where guys were looting the gardens and, you know, from what I understand, they were they were really close to you know breaking into the child hall, looting the child hall, and at a point at this facility during that protest, like you can clearly see that the prisoners had had taken control, like that emergency count and the, and, the, and the threats that they were yelling over the bullhorns to go lock down, it, it, it didn't work. You know, guys did not go in and lock down. So at one point, where you know they were denying ERT entrance, even entrance into the facility. Like, the administration didn't have control at that point. And so just to, I don't know, man, just just to imagine that it would, it would be interesting. You know, I would think that the federal government would have to come in or something. Thanks for listening. You can hear more voices from this report by visiting michiganabolition.org. This collection of interviews was produced by Rustbelt Abolition Radio with the help of MAPS. Michigan Abolition and Prisoner Solidarity. Original music by Bad Infinity.